dose. There's some things that are just consistent. You'd think all that color would warn them. And in that same way, we are now beginning a book so precious and special to us that we named one of our children after the main character. And you really can't get more intimate, in my opinion. And she, uh, well, it comes at one of the darkest settings, and that's really where we start this. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. And we are now beginning the eighth book of Scripture. We have the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then we have the next three, which are Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And it's easy to remember, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You know, poor Ruth. So if you can find the book of Ruth, go ahead and open it up to the beginning. While you're opening it up, I want to tell you a couple quick things. One is this coming Sunday night, I would love for you to join us. We are going to have Jesus Night uh, in Covent Garden, which we call it Jesus Night and not just Worship Night because people worship a lot of different things and we want people to know who we're worshiping. And uh, if you want to know more information, but it's basically two hours of what we just did. Oh, that's bright. Uh, except for that we um, have a special, we try to do a testimony or at least give some form of opportunity for people to know this Jesus we're worshiping. And... Uh, <clears throat> this coming Sunday night, you will have the privilege of being able to hear Sarah Amanqua's testimony, at least as we have, uh, we understand it right now. Uh, if she is able to come, she and she basically has every plan to. So, uh, please do come for that. Please do come to praise. Please do invite people who have yet to know Jesus. And we're just going to praise and have such a great time. Really, really looking forward to it. So that's Sunday night. If, and if you have some, by some miracle, you have a vehicle and you really like driving in the heart of the city, it's always, we are always looking for people, almost always, looking for people to help us uh, get the gear down and back. So, uh, you know, you can come and speak with us if you'd like to after, afterwards. Uh, also, we are looking at for those of you who have come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior but have never been baptized, uh, we are looking at the last Saturday in April, which I believe is April 31st, to go down. And if you are ever familiar with one of our baptisms, I know a few of you are because you've actually been baptized here, but uh, we go down to Brighton and we take the train together. And then we get out there in the open and we preach Jesus. And then we watch you testify of Jesus in baptism. And while everyone talks about being so cold, they don't think they'll ever defrost or whatever, we go for gelato afterwards. So I know it can't be that bad because you wouldn't do that otherwise. So anyways, that is the mark that on your calendars, your diaries. That is the 31st of April. So, oh, 30th of April. Is that the Saturday? Okay, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Marcia. Yes, it's always nice to have somebody detail-minded at a time like that. So the 30th of April, that's what I meant. That's what you heard, I'm sure, uh, somewhere in all that. Okay, pray with me, please. And I'm so excited to see what the Lord is going to do now in this time. Lord, we quiet our hearts. We seek to still ourselves before you, to hear what it is you want to tell us in this time. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you better, to know that even in the very darkest of settings, in the very roughest of times of life, we can still see you and discover your tremendous love for us.
And I pray that every person who comes here tonight, that every person who is here would encounter you in your word. More than just ascribe to truths, but to the God of truth. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, let us encounter you, we pray. Let this night be redeemed, every second of it, clear in you. And may we truly be captivated in your word and respond accordingly. We commit this night to you and pray that you would have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Ruth chapter 1, and I would call it the Gospel of Ruth. Starts with this. And now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of the wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Hildon, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. If you are in your Bibles, so you can flip backwards to the page, you can see how the book of Judges ends. And it says in the last verse of the book of Judges, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Perhaps harder than everyone doing what is wrong in their own eyes, because if you did what was wrong in your own eyes, you'd at least know I should probably stop this. Something inside of you says, well, I, this really shouldn't continue. Scripture makes clear God gives us a conscience, and that conscience begins pure, but it can be seared, it can be polluted, and it can even become evil, harmful. We can convince ourselves so efficiently that what we are doing is right even though no sane person in the right mind would agree. We in our right mind wouldn't agree either. But the nation had gotten to a point where everyone made up their own sense of right and wrong. And because everyone made up their own sense of right and wrong, everyone's right was right in their own eyes. And it was mayhem. It was a spiritual free-for-all. It was the darkest time. And God tells us why. Because there was no king in Israel. On the other side of the book of Ruth, where God makes clear in the first verse, this love story takes place in the heat of that. In the midst of the time when everyone is raping and stealing, we've seen stories of a man, a girl raped to death, of men that were sought to be brought out to be known carnally, a woman that was hacked into pieces and sent out, and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. In other words, in the eyes of the people committing these things, they were doing them thinking they were right in doing so. It had gotten to that point where nobody was safe. It's like the purge where everyone's just going out and getting mental, doing whatever they feel like it with no recourse, because if everyone's to do what is right in their own eyes, the only law that can, can appear to be possible is the one of tolerance. But what happens when your right infringes upon my right? Someone's going to have to choose. 
On the other side of the book of Ruth is the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, the people are going to finally ask for a king, but unfortunately the wrong one. And in 1 Samuel 8.6, Samuel, the last judge, if you will, uh, God speaks to Samuel and says, why are you bumming out? They haven't rejected you from being king. They've rejected me from being king that I shouldn't rule over them. So understand, when God says there's no king, it isn't because what God would really like is somebody just with a crown on their head. God was their king. And when God says in these days there was no king, that was because they were refusing the lordship of God and therefore made up their own sense of right and wrong. What's interesting is that whole theme plays out here because the first character we meet will remind us of that. So it came to pass in those days when raping and stealing and looting and fighting in whatever manner and abusing in whatever manner appeared to be right in someone else's eyes and everyone made up their own sense that there was a famine we read in verse 1. God makes really clear in Deuteronomy 28 that if we obeyed His commandments, sat under His Lordship, His reign, that God would provide as a king was responsible to provide for His kingdom. Food, protection. And that was what God had provided. Now understand, when the people had walked away from the Lordship of God, it wasn't that God punished them. They walked away from His provision. If two beautiful daughters, and if either of those lovely daughters decide, shine you, Dad, I'm not interested in you, I'm going to go out and do my own thing. Well, they do that without my provision. The provision comes at my blessing. That's not to punish them. That's the way that works. God promised in Deuteronomy that He would withhold the rains. The rains come at God's blessing. And so when you read about a famine, quite often we start to ask, especially since Deuteronomy, is this symptomatic of where the people are? And he says, there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem, and this is, we'll develop only a few words because we have to start with these things because it really just starts blowing open the story. Bethlehem, Bet means house. Lechem means bread. Remember that Bethlehem then means house of bread. That's pretty simple. Judah means praise. So there's a family that lives in a place called House of Bread. It's a city, a town. And these, this family, because of a famine, left because the House of Bread had no bread. Was how that works. So as they left, they went to a place called Moab. Moab, by the way, is a group of people that were formed by an incestuous relationship between a daughter and a father. This is Lot. The oldest of them names their firstborn then because they think they're the only people left on the planet, so they feel like they have to repopulate, and it's two girls and their dad. And forgive me for saying, that's just as sick as it gets. And in that, they, the, when the baby is born, they name him Moab, which means like dad. Boy. It was a place that Israel had conquered on their way into the promised land. So for them to go there is a step back. But they have to descend the Jordan Valley that separates them. That's 1,400 feet down. Then it's another 1,100 feet up on the other side, nearly 60 to 100 miles away. And who goes there? A man and his wife and his two sons. And that's the names we read then. In the next verse, verse 2, it says, The man's name was Elimelech. Now, here's our names. And we have them all in this verse. Elimelech, his wife, and the two sons. And all of this then helps point things out. El, like Elohim, means God. Or my God, Ali. Melech means king. Listen to the name where God tells us, in this time of Judges, when there was no king in Israel, 
the guy that God focuses on, his name is, my God is the king. I don't find that coincidental. And as my God is the king is highlighted, what we find is that his wife, the one who is now chosen to cling with him, is one whose name is Naomi, and Naomi means pleasant, or my pleasantness. And can I say, when you allow God to be your king, you will find not only your life, but yourself becoming a whole lot more pleasant. Those of you who are in a relationship, and I know there's at least a couple married couples in here, might I suggest you want the most pleasant spouse Do whatever you can to invest in them spiritually so that Jesus would be the king that he rightly belongs to be in their life. Because as he is, you will find them to be infinitely more pleasant. But in this time of famine, they have two kids, we find. And their names are, and try this with me, Mahlon. Try that, Mahlon. That was good. Mahlon and Hilion. Now, Mahlon means, if you will, sick. That's what a name. I mean, you can imagine the baby was born, maybe he didn't look that healthy, and they name him sick. Mahlon. Now, think of some of your languages. The word for ill or bad. Mal, male. Mahlon. See how that plays out. Hilion means to pine, to be exhausted, to be consumed like in consumption. In the simplest sense, his name is Tired. So the two kids' names are sick and tired. Kid you not, that's what it says right here. So my God the King and Pleasant head to, like their father, with their kids sick and tired. Verse 3, when you're aware you don't belong, you find death was brought. Elimelech. Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. It would be a great fear of a woman to lose her husband. But at least she has her sons as support as she gets older. And the two sons we read in verse 4 took wives from the women of Moab. The name of one of their one of the girls was Orpah. Now doesn't that just sound... Can you imagine if someone says to you, I've got a, I've got a friend and I really want you to meet her. Her name is Orpah. I don't know. And it means gazelle, by the way. In the Greek, that's Dorcas. I don't know if that or in Latin. That makes, that makes it any better. And then the name of the other was Ruth. And Ruth means friend. So we have one that means fawn, if you will, or oh dear. And the other one, which name means friend. And they dwelled there for about ten years. For about a decade, they're there. Verse 5. Then both Mahlon and Chilion also died. So sick and tired also died. I don't know. Should you have seen that coming? But now the woman's worst fears have come true. You see, her husband was her protector, her provider. But your children were your retirement. They were the ones responsible. The whole idea of honoring your mother and father according to the commandments, first and foremost, as Jesus brings that up in the Gospels, is about taking care of them when they're too old to take care of themselves. And so when this woman loses her two sons, she has no security, no retirement, no pension. She is now with two gals in a foreign country that are foreigners. But please understand, when women leave in the Middle East, not just in Israel, but in the Middle East, and they get married, they get adopted into the new family and they leave their old one behind. They have, in essence, forsaken their old family to marry into a new family. That is the mindset, is this adoption. And at this particular woman now moment, this older woman, pleasant, looks at her two girls, if you will, oh dear and friend, and she looks at these two, and she sees them, and then she recognizes at this moment the only connection they have was with men that no longer exist in their lives. And we read then she was survived. She, the woman survived both of her sons and her husband. And might I say, nobody should have to go through this. And to watch someone you love die like this. She left the land of milk and honey 
where her husband was there and she lost her physical provider, her heritage and her retirement plan with no hope. In those days, by the way, we are now looking at roughly around 1100, 1200 B.C. That's the beginning of the Iron Age. The only job a woman possessed in those days was prostitution. Verse 6, but she has hope if she could just return back to the land of Israel because there is supposed to be care for a widow there. So she arose with her daughters and daughters-in-law that she might return to the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited the people by giving them bread. Did you see the little pond that God gave there? In other words, God had now restored bread to the house of bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Of Judah. Now, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. She kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and left. Now what mom is really trying to do is give them an easy way out. They are still attached to her. If it were by honor, they would still be attached because they have left those families and were adopted into this family now. So what mom is doing is she's really just giving them a chance to bow out and start over. In other words, you know, I just mom's trying to be kind. And she's going, like, God, I just really don't want you to feel like me. Put me in your life as a burden. That's really not what I want at this point. Hey, you have a chance to kind of start over. Just go ahead and start over. Go and do it. And what we'll find is, is that's the case for one of them. Now, in verse 10, it says, And then they said, well, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, 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 turn back, my daughters. Will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they're grown? Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, there's a couple really key factors in here, but first of all, we need to recognize something. That this woman has said that the Lord deal kindly with you. So she doesn't just look at God and think that God is ultimately the great meaning. She doesn't think that God's just trying to be mean on everyone. God, be kind to you because you've been kind to me. And she calls him the Almighty, so she knows that he's not lacking power. However, she is somehow convinced at this moment that God has really dealt her the raw hand. That God has been cruel to her. He has been harsh to her. And no doubt, life was harsh. She had lost her husband and her two sons. This is a rough time. But the way she views herself and God is very different from the way she views God to other people. Now let me ask you something. What about you? Do you see God and just think, well, God's certainly going to bless Pastor Tony, or he's certainly going to bless Daniel, or he's going to bless, and you look around and you can just see the Lord's blessing, and then you look at you and somehow you assume you're going to be a second-class citizen. I mean, you've said yes to Jesus like the others. You've been adopted just like the others. But somehow God's got this great calling on other people's lives, but for you you're going to kind of eke out this little thing and somehow just kind of get into heaven and sneak in by the skin of your teeth. I mean, is that really what you think? Do you really think that somehow in all of this, God has such a great plan for others, but somehow with you, he really doesn't? You know, should I say, fortunately, that's just not scriptural. And she's looking at these two girls and she's like, you know, the Lord may be very kind to you still. I don't see him being kind to me. But what's interesting is what caused her to do that. Do you know that the word she uses here in verse 12 which is, is, if I should say, I have hope. Do you realize this is the first time the word hope appears in Scripture? And it's actually about a woman who doesn't have it. I mean, we don't see hope in the whole story of the promise with Abraham and it bearing forth 430 years later, if you will, after Israel winds up in Egypt and then is delivered out of Egypt and then brought into the promised land and delivered from their enemies. Nowhere do we read the word hope. 
I think it's interesting, the first time God introduces it is for a heartbroken woman here whose really life, her life as she knows it, has been shattered. I mean, her whole identity, her whole family, everything has been torn apart by death. In Moab, by the way, in a land where she doesn't belong. But what's interesting is, in the Hebrew, this is not the first time this word appears. Though the word hope, yes, this is the first time. But the word in the Hebrew is the word Tikva, try that word, Tikva. Tikva is used before this in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, when the spies visit the prostitute and they say, if you hang that scarlet thread out your window, your house will be spared. The word for scarlet thread is Tikva. Don't you find that interesting? I do. That when God introduced the word, it was actually in a place where a scarlet thread was hung to spear a woman and actually have her be saved and everyone else who would be in her household. Interesting, because that scarlet thread is going to trace us, of course, all the way down to Jesus. What we're looking for is that scarlet thread, that, if you will, the, the trail of blood that leads us to the cross. And that is the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. From Genesis to the Gospels points us to the cross. And then from, from the Gospels to Revelation, it points us back to the cross. It says, because of this event, because of this scarlet thread, we can have hope. But this gal hasn't any. Not at this moment. So would you? Would you wait for me to have more kids just so that you could stay in my family? She's jaded by events, this Naomi. Not sounding very pleasant, is she? She can't see how this is going to work out for God's glory. Let me say that again. Listen, she can't see how this is going to work out for God's glory or for her better. You know, if you've walked with Christ for any period of time, one of the first verses that gets quoted to you, and somehow it makes its way in your head, is from the book of Romans, where it says that all things work to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we kind of know the verse enough that we can quote it to the next new Christian. However, we really don't fully grasp the fact that God really is going to work all things. It doesn't have an escape clause. There's no addendum that says all things work to the good of those who love God unless you sin or accept this thing or accept death. or accept. And listen, in the end of it all, God doesn't expect us to understand everything that's going on in the world. But he does expect us to understand that he's good and, and he's smarter and better, and kinder, and stronger than we will ever be on this planet collectively. And if we could just trust those things, and trust that He's good, we wouldn't freak out over the wise as much. Hey, look at I don't understand when someone's like, you know, I've lost somebody, and I prayed for my grandmother, and she passed away. And for some of us who maybe have more of an outside, the gal, you know, we had this once where a particular person was asking for prayer. Her grandmother was 94. She had had several strokes. She was very, very ill. Almost every part of her body seemed to be shutting down. And, of course, the girl was just praying for her, for her to stay alive. And it's like, but I'm like, is that really what you want? She's like, well, I want is for her to be healed. And I'm like, for how long? She's like, well, for good. So we prayed and her grandmother passed away. And she was extremely angry. She's like, I don't understand how God could be good and let my grandmother die. I'm like, well, what she wanted was for her to be healed forever. How do you think she's doing right now? And the only reason I say that is that's an easier example to draw than those ones where we really don't understand. And by the way, do you ever think God's ever doing anything for one reason? I mean, God is the ultimate multitasker who's holding every one of your atoms in place. And we want to ask God, give me the one reason why this thing happened. God doesn't have one reason for anything because God's doing it under a whole bunch of levels. And our brains would explode if he started to, to develop all of that. And somehow our small minds like feel like we have a right to demand an answer from a God who really is that good. Who somehow we think we're smart enough that if God actually showed us all of the fallout for a specific choice or allowance, that somehow in all of that, that we would be able to go, okay, well, finally, that makes sense. I guess we're okay. But God isn't obliged to that. God is so smart that he's like, this is, he's like look, at, I really do need you to trust me. 
But what about the starving child in this place? Or what about the war here? Or what about the famine here? Whatever. And it's like, look it, I can tell you this. It's amazing how people can actually say that God can't be good because of those things, but they could still say man is good when man's the one doing most of it. It's like, how do you explain this man killing this child if God is good? I'm like, how do you explain man being good if man was the one who killed the child? In this particular situation here, she is really jaded by these events, and she can't really see the goodness of God in it, and she has convinced herself that this really can't really work out. She should just wait and just die and get off of the story. She sees a senselessness to this suffering. She sees no purpose in it. She doesn't see it as a setback. She doesn't even see it. But it actually, ultimately, what it is is a setup. She sees it as a complete shattering. And sometimes the greatest suffering in our lives is the greatest precursor to the greatest victories and the greatest glories. We just can't see it at the moment. Whether that's waiting till 90 to have a child like Sarah, whether that's Joseph, her great-grandson, if you will, being betrayed, sent to jail and accused of rape when he hadn't, Or whether that's, of all things, Jesus on the cross. Could there have been a more dark and dismal and hopeless moment than watching him die like that? And yet, we couldn't have at that moment, and none of his disciples ever said at a moment like that, well, don't worry, this is going to work out for our good, this is going to be awesome, even though Jesus actually said it would. Hear me for a moment and we'll move on. In Jeremiah 18, And it's an amazing story, and I challenge you to check it out on your own. God brings Jeremiah because he's struggling with the destruction of of Jerusalem and the people. And God takes him and he brings him to a potter, a guy who's making pottery with clay, spinning it on a wheel. And somehow in it, Jeremiah is drawn into this. And the guy starts making this beautiful pot, and he's watching this. The man's working the clay, and if you ever watch it, it's its own dance. I mean, it's really beautiful how the hands move and how the clay responds. It really is a beautiful thing. And, then, and as he's watching this, somehow in it, you even see Jeremiah kind of even being emotionally drawn into this moment, this artistry, this, this beautiful creative process. And somewhere in this whole thing, all of a sudden, out of what seems to be out of nowhere, the potter just goes, and he smashes it back down. And, and Jeremiah's like, whoa, 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 what's this? And he's almost indignant as he watches this. It's like, you know, it's, you know, you kind of get that really kind of beautiful, like, piano music in the background, a little bit of bird singing or something. Everything's kind of really peaceful. And it's like, bam! And all of a sudden he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! What's this? And God turns to Jeremiah and goes, whoa, whoa, Jeremiah, whose clay is it? Yours or the potter's? Doesn't the potter have a right to do what he wants with it? He could start making it something beautiful, and in the end of it all, he could make it a goofy ball of clay. It's his clay to do with it. Do you have really any say over it? He goes, Jerusalem, it's my ball of clay. Those people, they're my ball of clay. And sometimes, and normally when a potter starts to do that, what happens is, is that he's not content with the way things are progressing. Sometimes what happens is the clay gets lumpy, it gets, you know, kind of uneven, and what happens is it looks good for a moment, but by the time it dries, the whole thing kind of looks like Picasso, and I don't mean to pick on Picasso, but it wasn't intended to be that way. And it was intended to be something a little bit more symmetrical, and now it's just kind of looking like something more at the Tate Modern. Well, when God says, look it, there are times where I start doing this, but you as as your own clay, you harden yourselves. You kind of do that. And sometimes what God has to do is he has to do that to us just so that he could reshape it. But the great part about it is it isn't to punish. It's to restore. And sometimes you've got to find yourself on your face. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. But if we harden ourselves, it will be that way. For God to say, have you had enough now? Will you really let me shape you into the thing? Because I guarantee you, I only make masterpieces, and if you let me, I'll make you one. I already have the blueprints. I know exactly what I'm going to do. Back in our story, this is unfortunately what Naomi cannot see at this moment. She can't see how this is going to work. 
And we know the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. He's an accuser. That's what his name means. And he loves to accuse. And if he can't accuse you to another person or them to you, he can accuse you to God or God to you. And you hear, oh, how can God? Well, you know where that voice is coming from. So she's like, girls, go back to your houses and start over. It's interesting. She could look at them because they're young and think they could start over. She just can't see how her life could start. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you from me. This girl has stepped into a covenant with her mother-in-law. Not a promise, not a contract, but a covenant. A, an agreement that demands relationship for the rest of your life. Marriage is a covenant. It is, an, it is a commitment of relationship for the rest of your life. And God has made that covenant with us. What I find interesting is, two girls, one leaves, fawn fawns, if you will, and friend stays friend. What's interesting is how they responded, the verbs that God uses. The one that left, left with a kiss. Did you notice that? I find that interesting. Jesus had 12 that seemed devoted, covenanted into him. And yet one of them would betray him with a kiss. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. Would you betray me with a kiss? On the other side of it, what we read that was Orpa that we see at least with this. And it tells us in Proverbs 27, 6, that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, on the other side of it, we have Ruth, and the word was not kiss, it was cling. Did you see that? It like, it's like Orpa kissed, but Ruth clung. And I think, well, Jesus spoke about this actually to a girl named Mary in John, I'm sorry, in Luke 10:41, when her sister was upset because she was seeming to like doing all the service. The sister's name was Martha, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed or required, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And what did Mary do? She clung to Jesus at his feet. Ultimately, that's where we'll find Ruth at the end of this story, and I don't want to give too many you know, spoilers. But on one side there's the kiss and on the other side there's the clinging. And when the dust settles, those two daughters-in-law, one has gone back to Moab. That's Orpah. And this woman, Naomi, is now returning to Bethlehem with one of them, with her friend named Friend. Verse 18 says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, this is Ruth, that she stopped speaking to her. Now, this doesn't mean, well, fine, then I'm not going to talk to you. She stopped trying to talk her out of it. She just said, all right, well, then I guess your mind is made up. Now, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened, when they came to Bethlehem, that the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. There's a fun word, Mara. We get the word Maria, Mario, Mary, from this word. Mara means bitter. Notice she says, for the Almighty. Not just God here, Shaddai, the Almighty. The one who has all power 
has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me pleasant? Remember, that's the name Naomi, and you can see why I'm developing these names. Since the Lord had testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Now, I want to warn you. Some of you have a personality that is naturally effervescent. You're just pleasant people. People who tend to emote pleasantness tend to be magnetic. People are drawn to that. Most of the time, the people who are drawn are not of the same timber. They're usually much more Saturnine, they're more mild, or whatever the case would be. The same way that some cultures run a little hotter than other cultures. But the people who are, who are driven and are kind of wired in a way where they're kind of just more jubilant are targets. I mean, we all are in our own ways, and I'm not trying to make this some kind of weird paranoia thing because that's not the point. The enemy just knows the danger of a joyful Christian. Now, if we were all joyful in this room, filled with the joy of the Lord, that doesn't mean we would all demonstrate it in the same way. Some would probably shout, and there are others that might give a woohoo under their breath. It doesn't make one more than the other, but from the world's perspective, when they're watching, there are certain people that if you were just quiet, people might ask what's wrong with you. Some of you in this room, if you were just quiet, nobody would think anything because you're kind of that kind of person anyways. I think if Sam, unless Sam walked around with a heavy frown, it isn't like too many people are going to pick up and go, is everything okay? Some of us in this room, though, we even get mildly quiet and people ask us what's wrong because they're so used to seeing us over the top that just getting down to the normal is weird. They kind of look and they're like, Adam, what's up, buddy? Come on, blow us up. You know, because clearly there should be, this isn't the you we know. Where's the you we know? You know, come on, the life of the party. Right? And the reason I say that is, is what happens when that person doesn't just go to that place where that's the norm, but they go below that. Imagine when you're up here, you have this influence on people. People are drawn, they remember your name, and there's a reason for that. And you give Jesus the glory, and people come to Christ because of that. And then you come down to here, and people, you just kind of were trying to blend in with everyone else. But you get down here, you are pulling people into a really dark place. And the problem is, some of you, there's nothing you can do about the way God wired you, but you can make a choice if you are those kind of people, to really choose if you're going to be, if God's going to make you a leader, then you really better make up your mind where you want to lead them. Because they're going to be led by you, like it or not. So make the choice to lead them to Jesus. And unfortunately, get the idea here, this girl seems to have a reputation. Not the kind of thing when we say a girl has a reputation, what that normally means, but the kind of thing where people are excited about her coming back. They're like, hey, you guys, they're always coming. And imagine people, I mean, they've been gone a decade, 10 years. That's a long time. In those 10 years, a three-year-old child's 13. Three-year-old may not have known anything. So imagine at 13 now, you could tell your child, you'd be like, honey, listen, wait till you meet her. This is a girl. And you know people like this. It's like when she walks in the room, she lights up the room. The room just becomes more colorful. It becomes more lit up. Now, there are people, they walk in the room and it's almost like the opposite. But it's like, you know, it's just like, I just feel like when they come in, the room's just warmer and it just, it feels more like home and it just feels more special. And you feel more special when they walk in the room. You know, it's like, oh man. And you know, like those kind of people, when that happens, and you're like, I just can't wait for that. And imagine, so you're telling a 13-year-old child that. And they're like, wow, I just can't meet to meet this person. Okay, Aunt Naomi. Whoa, I can't wait for this. You know, and they're all kind of excited. And they're all like, oh, man, here she comes, here she comes. And she's like, Bleh. And they're like, you could see them kind of turning to mom and going, mom, is, is, this real, is this really the one you're talking about? Because she doesn't. She doesn't look like Tigger. She looks like Eeyore. I'm not getting it. You know, and, and they're like, and they get people going, Naomi? Pleasant? 
hey, pleasant. Don't call me that. I'm not that person anymore. That's not me anymore. You know why? Because God did this to me. God did this to me. And the moment you start embracing some kind of accusation against God, that's where you're going to wind up. Have you ever seen an antagonistic atheist that's ever really pleasant? And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest. How could you possibly be when you think, well, first of all, you're angry at somebody you say doesn't exist. That doesn't make any sense to me anyway. But, you know, and somehow when you spend your whole life trying to teach everyone else that he doesn't exist. If you spend your whole life just trying to convince kids of the truth that there's no Easter bunny, imagine what your life would be like. And in that case, you would at least have truth behind you. You're like, hello, my name is the party pooper. And this girl, she's at this place now, and, her, and she's like, don't even call me that anymore. You know, it's like, I know you remembered me this way, where I really was joyful, where I really was joyful. But here's the problem. Jesus said, when I'm raised in John 16, I will give you a joy no one can steal. So we need to have an agreement, Christians. Don't lie to me or yourself and tell me how the devil stole your joy. Because if Jesus gives you a joy no one can steal, no one means no one. But that doesn't mean you can't trade it in. And the enemy goes, well, at first he tries to just get you to trade it in for something stupid and temporary. This is shiny and this is exciting and you have spiritual ADD, this will work. But sooner or later, one of the easiest things to trade it in for is resentment, bitterness. And the moment you trade it in for resentment and bitterness, joy goes way out the window. And the enemy knows that because he knows the threat and the danger you are to the kingdom of hell by being joyful. He knows. And you know what? And it's like, look at so, okay, so, so you have a nasty boss, or so you have a crazy situation, or you have somebody doing something weird, and you have a crazy neighbor, or you know you have the government's being weird, or whatever, and you feel like some relationship has gone sour, or whatever the thing is, you got a zit. You know what? It doesn't take much. But all of a sudden, a bad hair day turns like the nicest person into Medusa. What just happened? And somehow in that, people look and they're like, well, you're no different than I am. You say you have Jesus, but I don't see it making any difference in your life. And if you are magnetic, people are going to be drawn to watch you at the good times and the bad times. Now, I'm not saying that that means you need to be like, yippee skippy, my friends died or my family died. I'm not saying that. But there's a way to say, you know, even in this rough moment, I'm going to cling to Christ and I'm going to still have joy. I'm going to have a confidence and I'm going to have a peace. But I'm going to rest in this because it tells us, by the way, that we can grieve with or without hope. And it's that hope that is an anchor to our soul, according to Hebrews. And hope in Christ. So listen, as we bring this to close, because starting in the second chapter, we'll, you know, we'd, we'd be here half the night. Naomi returns. Notice, by the way, though, God calls in verse 22, he still calls her Naomi. God refuses to call her Mara, even though she's telling everyone else to call her that. And maybe, you're, maybe that's your situation right now. Hey, maybe you had something. And look at I'm not belittling the situation. I want to magnify the one who's greater. But the moment you want to blame God for something like that, you'll never get past it. The moment you blame God, you actually put God into the middle of the problem as if he were the problem, and there's no one bigger than him, so how do you solve it? You start declaring war against the one who loves you. Well, you did this to me. You made this happen. And this is one who's reaching out to try to comfort you, bring resolution and peace. And this girl, let's, let's be honest, this girl is in the darkest time in her life that we could imagine. In the sense, she has lost everyone in her life that was male, that we can at least see according to this at the moment. One of her daughters-in-law has left, and she's left now with this Moabite girl. As she enters in, by the way, six different times in the book of Ruth, it's only four chapters, she'll be called, Ruth will be called the Moabitess, the girl from Moab. 
and in this now, all these people were really excited to see her, and she kind of returns back, and you could see them being like, what happened to you? I used to like grab my emotional straw and suck off of your personality because I just loved the taste of your personality and what it did to me. What happened to you? I remember like just watching you and my day would get brighter because and your smile seemed so genuine. You were the first person, listen, please, you were the first person I could look at and genuinely think that this world, as temporary as you claim it to be, really couldn't conquer that joy you said you had. And I was starting to consider, this really does look different. And joy is only going to stand out over happiness at the hardest moments. Because happiness is built on what's happening, thus the term. When things are happening nicely, you have happiness. But when things aren't happening nicely, you can still have joy. And according to Scripture, since it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, the only ones who have joy are those who have God's Spirit. And the only ones who have God's Spirit are those who have said yes to Jesus. And if we said yes to Jesus, then you have a joy that you should never take the spotlight off of for happiness. When I have a joy, I say, God, even if you slay me, I'm going to praise you. If I were to get cancer and die, I trust you. Then let me die well. Let me die with joy. If we find ourselves in some crazy financial strait, let me display joy in that challenge. And we've been in those here. Greatly so. We found ourselves in the last two years having to fight to stay into the country so we could love and serve you guys. We're going to do it with joy. And if people are going to get weird or accuse or lie or do whatever they, the things that people can do, I, I can't stop them from being who they want to be, but I can, I can make the choice. I can make the choice. Do I really want to trade in joy because they don't have a say over that. That's all me. No matter what happens in my life, nobody can steal my joy. And if nobody can steal my joy, I'm the only one who has a say over it. And in God's presence is the fullness of joy. And I can sit in a room next to Hugo And ignore him the entire time. He's still there. But I'm not enjoying his presence. And God, though he'll never leave me nor forsake me, I could be so angry at him, I could not want to talk to him. I can cross my arms and look away any way that I want and try to ignore anything he wants to say or do. And I will not experience the joy that I should. This Naomi was famous. This is big talk. And they were expecting true pleasantness. Jesus said in John 16:22, "In the world, you will have sorrow." He said, "There, you will now have sorrow, but you will see me again, and when you do, your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one can take from you." We will read this is about to happen at what we read next week to begin at the beginning of the barley harvest. We will read that the book ends at the end of the wheat harvest. Now that may not mean much to you unless you grew up farming. I did not grow up farming, so I had to discover what that meant myself. What's interesting is The Jewish people are required, the Jewish men were required to attend three feasts a year. The first of them is Passover. 
then Pentecost, and then Tabernacles. Passover begins at the beginning of the barley harvest. Tabernacles begins at the end of the wheat harvest. Three and a half months. The entire book of Ruth will be three and a half months long. It will begin at Passover and it will end at Tabernacles. Passover is the first fruits. Pentecost is the first great harvest. And Tabernacles is the last great harvest. The three most important dates in history and we'll talk about those next week. This is where we leave off tonight. And it's a little rough, but here's the good news. You don't have to wait just till next week. You can read the rest of the book. It's only three chapters long. But there is a girl who's heartbroken. And as she's heartbroken, she can't find hope. And she can't see how God is going to make good of it. But I'm here to tell you, he is good. He's not just almighty. He's all good. And if I can look at the cross and say, you can't get more hopeless than death on the cross. I understand how God can take something so horrible and use it to redeem. God had promised, by the way, 700 years before Jesus came. It's 550 years before Jesus came. That Jerusalem... Well, the nation Israel would be restored under the worst of circumstances. Under the worst of circumstances. But Israel was still a nation. Dispersed, yes, but, but still a nation. And regaining. But when the, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, that was a very hard one to swallow. Israel was not Israel. There was no Israel as we knew it. There was no land, no, well, there was the land, but there was no peoples per se, government, nation. And it remained that way, if you think about it, for over 1900 years. 1900, if you will, 1970, or 1870 years. Until a madman rose up in Germany, believing evolution, by the way, don't buy the lie that you thought, that he thought he was a Christian. Or that he was promoting Christian values. Hitler believed in all of Darwin's book. Not just the parts that were evolution. The whole concept behind it was that was the means to the end. That there was a super race. Survival of the fittest. Even the title of of Darwin's book spoke of the existence of a super race. Eugenics is what it's called. Of course, anyone who believes that believes that they're the super race. Why would you believe somebody else is the super race? And as it was the case, of course, he started changing everything, making it about economics. And as it was the case, ultimately, he went after people to kill them, including the entire Jewish race. And as he murdered in these death camps, the Jewish people, they had been betrayed in Russia, in Italy, In Germany, of course. In Europe, Eastern and Western. They had been betrayed, handed over. When the dust settled at the end of the Holocaust, at the darkest, one of the darkest times in all of history, would you go back? If your next door neighbor handed you in because they knew you were Jewish, would you go back? They had no place to go. They couldn't go back to Italy or Romania or Yugoslavia today or whatever. They couldn't go back. And so they tried to go into other places, Canada, America, the UK. None of us really let them in. So the only place left for them to go was Israel, the land. And it was because of this that over a million Jews showed up on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And shortly thereafter, Israel would become a nation. That's exactly what God had promised. That Israel would be born in the worst of circumstances. When people say, how could a loving God allow something as horrible as a Holocaust? Of course, we can say that was men. See, 
can you see how an amazing God and only a God that loves can take something as horrible as a Holocaust and birth a nation out of it? As we go to prayer to conclude tonight, what are you going through that you can't possibly see what God could birth in it? In the time of judges where everything is, if you will, anarchy, fascist, And yet in that fascism, in that anarchy, where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, God births the most beautiful love story in the entire Old Testament and uses it to prepare us for Jesus. And he doesn't just take a a season or a time or a culture that's really dark. He takes a woman whose life has been as well stripped of all of the things and now seems to be hopeless. But that's because she, like you, has not read her next chapter. So you don't know what's next chapter. But I can tell you this. I know the plans God has for you. They're for good, not harm. To bless, not curse. To give you a future and a hope. And I know this because God took the darkest of times the death of his own son. He understands the death of a son. For our sins. But at his resurrection, hope was truly born and joy unquenchable was given. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you. Thank you for what you've done tonight here. Thank you, Lord, that you know right what we're going through, what we're experiencing, how rough things are, the challenges. Some of them at our own hand. I mean, if we're going to be honest, we've deserved them. Some we don't understand. We don't understand how pounding the clay is going to of our life is going to be made into something more beautiful and we thought things were pretty good the way they were. But I pray for a heart that trusts you beyond these things. I pray, God, for a heart that trusts you, that knows that though you were almighty, you were also all good. And for all the things we grapple with, the whys and the I don't understands of life, We can't possibly imagine that a complex universe where one life intertwines with billions of people directly and indirectly, that there could be just one reason and a simple pat answer solution for events that we don't totally, we can't wrap our head or heart around. And there are ones that are painful and they're horrible and they're wicked and they're evil and they're... We see it around us and that just makes me cry out for you more. Jesus, please come quickly and deliver your people. So here in this room, right now I pray if there's anyone who's been overcome. They were the Naomi. They were pleasant. They were magnetic. They were effervescent. And they seemed impervious to these challenges of life. But tonight, they come here in a very different state than that. They come in like a Mara. I pray tonight you would rebirth in them hope. Hope where there seems like there's no hope. Like the Lazarus in their life. And in that, God, I pray that tonight you would show yourself as the conqueror of all hopelessness at the cross. Jesus, we do confess you died at the cross for our sins, for a punishment we rightly deserve. But when you paid that that price at the cross, we could be confident it was paid in full. And just like Scripture promised on the third day you rose again from the grave you were buried in, to prove that not only was the price enough, the payment enough, but also 
that tonight we could claim the hope that comes. We're all hopeless, or all previous hope may have died at the cross. Birth a new impervious hope that cannot be conquered, tackled, or even damaged. But a firm resolution and an expectation of the great things you have yet to come in our lives. So we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Jesus, as you are Lord and Savior of our lives, be that King that you rightly deserve to be and show us what is really right. In that, you will show us your redemption. And in your presence is the fullness of joy, above and beyond what we can contain, so we could spill that joy on others, regardless of how you've wired us, be it spazzy or, or solemn, Make us people who are so full of your joy that we spill it on others now and become contagious that others would know how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.